DiscerningHearts.com presents The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. Dr. Doran is a board-certified neurosurgeon with over 25 years of experience and is also an ordained permanent deacon and serves as the bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He is the author of To Die Well, a Catholic neurosurgeon's guide to the end of life, the book on which this series is based. His writings in bioethics, neurosurgery, and gene therapy for brain disorders have been widely published in national media outlets, academic journals, and neurosurgery textbooks. He is also the co-founder of Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon, with Dr. Stephen Doran. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Steve, thank you once again for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you, Chris. It helps that we have had a friendship that spans well over a decade. It's very easy for me to talk to you about some issues that can be very difficult. And in this case, withdrawing care from someone who is experiencing an illness, a severe illness, I think this is a topic that is, all of them are sensitive, but this is a really particular one that has to be handled very carefully, don't you think? Yes, and because, you know, I think what the decision to withdraw care, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, more in detail, sometimes people erroneously impose this burden on themselves, like, oh, if I make this decision to withdraw care, somehow I'm morally culpable for what happens afterwards. And so it really charges that discussion, you know, because somehow whatever my decision is, whether it's for myself or whether it's for a family member, if I choose to no longer go forth with a certain care, it's my fault. I made it happen. And that's why I think this is a particularly difficult topic for some people to think about. And it's also very, and I'll say this, I'm sure multiple times, there is dependent so much on the circumstances of prognosis and level of function and age and all those things really come into play when you're making these decisions. I can't imagine what it's like for you to revisit some of these beautiful people that you write about in the book. You know, not just bringing up their stories, putting them in the book, but in the discussions that come forward, they may no longer be with us. But in a very real way, they're very present to us, and they're very still present to you. Yeah, I mean, I've been blessed to be able to help care for, you know, literally thousands of patients over the years. But there's certain ones that you just remember mostly for good reasons and sometimes for challenging reasons that they, you know, remain in your memory. But, yeah, the the patients that I write about, yes, are, are very much within my memory. Mary is one of those who came into your office, had a problem walking, and having had an MRI, that a pretty difficult discovery was made, wasn't it? Yes. So she was having symptoms, so they did a scan, and the scan showed a tumor. And so she was in my office, and given its location and its appearance and the high probability that was a malignant and curable tumor, made the recommendation to have a biopsy to confirm that diagnosis. She's just this beautiful woman. I mean, just so faithful, so gentle. And her family was obviously very appropriately concerned. And so we scheduled this biopsy and, you know, it all went well. And so then she came back a few days later to receive the results. And, 
you know, this is one of those those responses that I'll never ever forget. And I just remember saying to, oh, it must have been so hard to wait. You know, I've I've been on that side of that equation before where you're waiting, waiting, waiting for results and so hard to wait. And her response was, she says, oh, no, Dr. Doran. She said, this has been my holy week. This has been my holy week. And and it was just such a profound thing. And I think like many patients, Mary, Mary had a sense, you know, and we had talked enough even before the biopsy of what this was likely to be. So the diagnosis of a fatal brain tumor wasn't out of the blue for her. Um, and she knew that it was a possibility and, in fact, the most likely thing. So during that week between the biopsy and getting test results back for her was not one of anxious, worry, uh, and things like that. And I'm sure, you know, there's some sadness. Of course there is. But for her, it was just a time of, of settling her heart and her mind, preparing her heart, you know, for, for receiving that news and receiving it in a prayerful prayerful way. So there is different types of treatment for this particular cancer and a great degree of hope, correct? Yeah, there's, yes, I would say there certainly is treatments that are appropriate. And this is one of those cases. She had what's called a glioblastoma, which is a, unfortunately, a universally fatal tumor, but there can be some variation in, in prognosis based upon a lot of factors. And so by all means, it's it's appropriate to treat this particular tumor. Oftentimes, it's with surgery to remove as much of the tumor as possible. Then that's followed by radiation and chemotherapy. In Mary's case, we couldn't remove it, so she went for radiation and chemotherapy. So there are very effective treatments that slow the growth and control for a long time. And, and in Mary's case, it controlled it for a number of months, but the inevitable occurred and the tumor recurred. And, and so then the decision was, okay, do we then transition to a a different type of treatment, a treatment that maybe isn't as well tolerated or as effective. And this is one of those things where two different people of good intent and of good faith could, could make a different decision. You know, Mary's decision was, no, I, I think we've we've done enough. You know, I know this is I know this is fatal and we've treated it appropriately. And for me to go to the next step, knowing that its effectiveness is limited, I had more side effects. No, I, I, I think I, I think I'm okay. I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. And so that can be a very appropriate treatment. Whereas a different person in that same set of circumstances can come to a very different conclusion and say, No, I want to keep at it. I want to keep fighting this. If there's another treatment, it's possible to to hold this tumor at bay longer. I want to do that. Both are very loving responses. Both equally appropriate. The thing is, if you've, I'm going to make a generalization, I suppose, but the thing is, if you've lived past the age of 30, chances are you have encountered a story either in a family or in friendships of someone who has had to struggle with a severe illness. It starts to become more apparent, whether it was a grandparent or maybe a parent, or or it's a friend. I mean, hearing these kind of stories kind of bring up those moments in our own lives in which decisions had to be made. And I think that's part of the importance of bringing the the stories that you have in your book to light because it makes it real. It's not just clinical. Well, thank you. Yeah, that is the intent is to put some, you know, I guess meat on the bones of these issues that they're not just abstract concepts, but they have real life applications. And to your point, Chris, I think when people hear or read these stories, they they can think of, um, of people in their lives who are in similar circumstances. And, you know, in the midst of all that, it's just, you know, so overwhelming and everything. And 
And quite honestly, maybe some of these stories will will stir up, will kind of trigger some of these emotions again for them. But yeah, I think you're right. We've we've probably all had some similar experiences over over our lives. You say in this particular chapter that pain is experienced at multiple levels, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And this is, I think, something that, it, it, how do you weigh this in as a physician? How do you weigh this in as a deacon counseling a family or even just being a member of a family that has to make such an important decision to withdraw care, as it were, continuing active, how can I say this, active attempts to attack the problem? Well, to the first part of that question, you know, the pain being experienced at a physical and emotional or psychological level and spiritual, I think that that's so incredibly true, but in so incredibly ignored, especially on the spiritual level. I think the medical world in general you know, focuses about 99% of its attention on the physical aspects of pain and about 1% on the psychological aspects of it and 0% on the spiritual. You know, I'm Garnet, I'm, you know, painting with a broad brush here, but, but, but I think that true, you know, we are not this dualistic separation of mind and body from our spirits and our souls. We're integrated into one. We're, we're a composite of body and soul and, and to neglect the care of the soul of the spirit is unfortunately what oftentimes happens and unfortunately can compound the suffering that people experience at the end of life. You know, not all pain leads to suffering, does it, right? I mean, pain of a hard workout for your basketball team isn't necessarily suffering. So, but yet this whole mystery of what pain turns to suffering and what you do with your suffering now becomes very much intertwined with our spiritual lives. And uh, we, if we forget that, we forget it at our own peril or at the peril of our loved ones. For Mary, it seemed as though she was making the judgment to discontinue treatment because she was just she wasn't escaping the suffering of it all, but it was more she was at peace with things, and she was cognitively ready to make that decision and to enter into the next phase of her eternal life. Yeah, that's fair. And and I, and I think where it touches on also this, for Mary, uh, looking at whether this particular treatment would be proportionate or disproportionate. In other words, you know, burdensome versus normal, extraordinary versus ordinary. So those are all kind of similar terms where we have to weigh out Okay, the benefits of this treatment versus the the bad things associated with this treatment. You know, at what point do the bad things about this treatment outweigh the good benefits? And so for Mary, she judged in her mind that going on and receiving additional treatment for her would have been burdensome. It would have been a burden for her or her family or both, that the benefits were minimal and the bad effects uh, outweighed it. So she judged in her mind that this treatment was now becoming burdensome or disproportionate or extraordinary. Those are all words that are kind of used interchangeably when judging whether or not to continue with treatment or even to initiate treatment. Now, there's another case that you pose in this particular situation, and I've known someone very similar to Roberta. 
then and unfortunately we've we've all heard stories of a young mother who is diagnosed with a cancer in her case it was breast cancer and that she you know having four young children wanted to to do everything she could to try to be there and be and remain present for her children yeah and 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 that's Roberta's case that she had breast cancer and it spread to her brain and and I did several a couple surgeries on her when it spread to different parts of her brain with each surgery you know she recovered but she never recovered back to where she once was and then at one point the tumor had spread to the brain in the sense it was like coating the brain it wasn't like there was a a tumor you could remove. It was the brain and the spinal cord were being coated with tumor cells, and there's nothing surgical you can do about that. You can, you can put a specialized reservoir into the spinal fluid spaces and give chemotherapy, but in most situations that has minimal effectiveness or very small amount of effectiveness, and the prognosis at that point is is very very poor. The, the death is very close. Yet uh, Roberta wanted everything done. Now, it is not for me to to say that Roberta was being irrational or she was hanging on or clinging or or to try to impose my sense of what her her heart and mind were thinking. But most people in those circumstances probably when when all the factors were laid out probably said, well, okay, that's fine. We fought the good fight. Doing this last step's not going to make a big difference. Means a surgery, means going in and getting chemotherapy in this reservoir in my head and I would say 90-plus percent of people in that situation probably would say, no, I'm done. But Roberta didn't. It's The situation is so dependent upon the person, their values, their desires, prognosis, all those different types of things. And and so in her situation, while probably the vast majority of people would have stopped care, she didn't. And she knew that this was only going to extend her life for a short time, but for her, it was worth it. And I didn't get a sense from her that she was fighting death, like, afraid of death. That wasn't the sense at all. I think she was very much aware that she was going to die. She was going to die soon, but whatever additional time she could have with her children was worth everything to her, even though she knew she was going to die. Well, and it's worth it to them, too. It's just a little bit longer to be able to create a memory, to be able to have a little something to hold on to. And again, that's the kind of decision, prayerful, discerning decision that needs to be made in the heart of the family with spiritual counsel and with a doctor who is willing to take that journey with them. Yeah, I think if you try to carve out any one of those things and hold it up as the only measure of decision-making, you're going to get in trouble. You know, spiritual, psychological, and physical all need to be considered in this decision-making process. And as I mentioned, you exclude any of them, you're going to do that at your own peril. We'll return to The Final Journey with Dr. Stephen Doran in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty 
my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. An easy way to help discerning hearts is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our Instagram and Facebook pages are vibrant spaces where you can engage with daily inspirational quotes from the saints, streaming DH broadcast encounters, and updates about our latest offerings. On our YouTube channel, you'll find a treasure trove of video podcasts, interviews, guided meditations and prayers, and reflections from renowned spiritual leaders. These resources are carefully curated to provide guidance, wisdom, and insights that can help you discern life's challenges with a sense of purpose and peace. By subscribing, following, and engaging with Discerning Hearts on these platforms, you're not only enriching your own spiritual journey, but also helping to spread awareness of our mission. Every like, share, and comment helps us reach more people who are seeking meaningful growth and connection. So, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and then share with a friend. Join the Discerning Hearts community and embark on a transformative spiritual journey alongside fellow seekers. Your engagement not only benefits you, but also contributes to the growth and impact of Discerning Hearts. We now return to The Final Journey with Dr. Stephen Doran. There gets to be a point where, and maybe you've heard this phrase this way, that when is it proper to save a life as opposed to prolonging a death? And that's maybe part of this, the, the question that comes into play in this particular, and in all, both of these particular situations. Yeah, I think in Roberta's example, I don't think she was perceiving this as a way to put off death because she knew she was going to die, was well aware of that, but more preserving life for as long as possible. You know, and 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 because I've seen, and this is such a very much an individual person's response to the circumstances. I've seen people whose desire to continue with care is not to prolong their life, but to avoid death. And not that that's a bad thing. I mean, we don't intentionally go out and seek death and not wanting to die is, is normal and, and, and in some ways healthy, but there can come at this point some situations where, you know, the reality is so strong in front of a person that they're going to die and they just, or the family members, the idea of this person dying is so overwhelming that they make all their decisions based upon not wanting them to die. And that's a different, it's subtle, but it's a real distinction between, say, Roberta, who's knowing she's going to die and not afraid to die, but wanting to live as much as she could. In the case of Tim that you bring forward in the book, there comes up the subject of ventilators. And that is something that I hadn't even begun to consider as something that would be a difficult challenge until the experience of COVID and the awareness of what can happen to the body, uh, that it can be great help, but it also can be a, a very difficult thing to have to be used in a situation. I'm trying to be very delicate here because, I, I, again, like so many of us, it's not common nomenclature for us. Yeah, I think that, I think by and large, when people think about what might happen when 
death approaches or they're nearing their end of their life, they just don't get so granular in their thinking about ventilators. But yet, it's something that happens in a quite a number of patients. And I think you're, you know, COVID, as an example, really brought this to the forefront is that, you know, when do you use a ventilator? When do you stop a ventilator? All of a sudden, I think that became more part of our collective consciousness of what technology has allowed us to do. And I think the ventilator is one of those cases in particular where because it's such a, a very defining moment, whether to put someone on a ventilator or not to put someone on a ventilator, it's a very super emotionally charged decision-making because unlike, say, a chemotherapy or other treatments whose effectiveness is is experienced over weeks or months or something like that, the ventilator is like an immediate now type of thing. You're on it or you're not. And so it's particularly very, as I mentioned, charged moment in, in medical decision-making lives. This is one of those cases where, as you mentioned, the durable power of attorney. This, especially for couples, at least, right? Or for children with parents. It's important to have that, isn't it? Yeah, there's no way we can anticipate, you know, five years ago, the idea of a pandemic wasn't on anybody's consciousness. But now people are faced with these decisions like, oh, my goodness, do I allow them to put my husband on a ventilator? Is the prognosis reached a point where it makes sense that a ventilator has now become too burdensome? And it, yes, it makes sense to stop the ventilator for my wife. So you're right. that Those are decisions. It's extraordinarily rare that the person on the ventilator can make that decision for themselves. Extraordinarily rare. It's almost always someone making that decision for them. And so you need to have a person that you love, that loves you, that you trust, who shares your values, who shares your faith, having that person identified and having that conversation with them in advance so, so that they you know, as best they can make decisions for you in that situation. Because if you're on a ventilator, you're most likely not going to be able to do that. This is where it gets scary for the family member or the loved one or the person who has been given that charge to have a physician or care workers that you feel you can trust in helping to give you the type of advice that kind of meets those different levels, not just the physical, but also Again, the spiritual, I mean, that element of it, I think, is so important, don't you? Oh, the emotional level, too. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. That, that all has to be incorporated. All has to be integrated. So what type of factors, then, would you want to look at in, in regards to the use of a ventilator? What would be the, I guess, the appropriate reason to use one and then maybe... What might be the thing that would give you pause? Not very long pause, but cause you to have to just contemplate that possibly inevitable decision. Well, I think in some ways it's a little bit helpful to step back a little bit and kind of demystify the ventilator a little bit. The ventilator is a tool like other tools that we have. And so, as I mentioned, there is this immediacy about it that kind of heightens that urgency. But step back from a ventilator is a tool. We've got lots of tools in our toolbox. Is this the right tool or not? And so trying to kind of take a little of that emotional charge out of it. The ventilator, to be honest with you, is kind of the default position. If you're in that, if you come are taking the emergency room and you're not breathing effectively, they're going to put you on a ventilator, you know. And it's only later that maybe when the diagnosis is made, prognosis is understood where the decision to remove the ventilator is made later. Now, that said, in a more controlled situation, there are patients who are in the hospital already. Uh, COVID's a great example where they're doing okay, they start to deteriorate, and now now you're on the decision, do you put someone on a ventilator or not? 
you know, in that emergency room situation, you're going on a ventilator, you know, more likely. And there's some exceptions to that. But now in that situation where someone has getting worse and worse, then you need to decide, is this the appropriate treatment? Is this, what are the goals of this? What can we accomplish by this? So yeah, those those decisions can sometimes be in, in a way made for you. But uh, in other ways, there's a chance for other people to participate in that decision-making process. Now, in Tim's particular case that you cite in the book, he suffered a stroke. Then when he came in, he was placed on the ventilator and his brain was swelling. And his survival, as it were, as you said, was probably in the book that it was probably highly improbable. And the family then requested to have him taken off the ventilator. That particular case for the family, it can be very difficult, I would imagine, if the family you're dealing with possibly doesn't have a strong faith life, that there is something that there's more that's beyond there. I'm talking about heart issues here, and it's not the black and white of things, but just having to deal with, am I making the right decision? Did they do the right thing? Did they... Was it too soon or whatever like that? That is a very tender place to enter into if you're a care worker, isn't it? It is. And the problem that we sometimes run into is that there's this need for time, say on the front end of whether you put someone in a villain or the family needs time you know, to decide, but you don't have a lot of time, right? And so there's an urgency to that. On the back end, the decision to remove the ventilator tends to be more time with that. And, you know, in Tim's case, for example, he came in the emergency room, he wasn't breathing appropriately, was placed on a a ventilator right away. Kind of like I said, that default with rare circumstances, that default is we're going to save someone's life, you know, control their airway, their breathing, their circulation, then we'll sort it out. So that's what happened with Tim. But then as he, despite a couple procedure surgeries and other procedures, got worse and worse, his brain swollen. Now you've got a little bit more time to kind of step back and say, okay, this is a this is a really, really bad situation. There really is minimal chance for survival. And if survival happened, just you know, prolonged uh, dependency and never able to live independently. And then there is, fortunately, that time to kind of better able to look at all those factors, the the emotional, the spiritual, the physical, and and not that you have necessarily days or weeks to make that decision, but at least it isn't like this instant decision that needs to be made right away. And so that possibility of removing someone from the ventilator, there's usually some time to make that decision. What about that care worker, the nurse who is in surgical ICU, who's caring for the patient or ICU, or the the physician, and you're on the sidelines in some ways because the family has to make the decision. And in your heart, maybe it's too soon, but the family wants to do this now. And of course, the family has the ability to be able to make that decision. How do you deal with the factor of conscience and the surrender of control when you're dealing with those lives, when you have to say, okay, even though you may be feeling, I don't feel this is so okay? Yeah, and and this can occur in any number of circumstances, whether it's a ventilator or other types of treatments, where maybe in most situations, most patients or their family members would want to continue some care, whether it's a ventilator or something else. And a desire to stop treatment seems a little bit beyond what the normal patient or their family might do in the same set of circumstances. 
So it can create this quandary, and that's where giving some space and time is necessary for, say, the caregivers to maybe better understand why is it that you want us to stop treatment at this point? That seems early, but tell me why you might think this way. Having those conversations, listening, and also hopefully that the the family will will listen to you and, and your explanation and say, hey, I think this is a bit premature. There's still a good possibility that they're going to pull through this. So you need to give some space and time during the decision-making. On rare occasions, there's enough conflict between what the family desires and what most medical practitioners think is appropriate. And you can actually get ethics consults in the hospitals if there's a, a, a big difference of plan on how to go forward. So there are mechanisms in place to help guide those decisions. But Quite honestly, by and large, the majority of it is just being willing to sit down and spend the time and try to understand on both sides. Why do you want to stop care? Here's why I think you shouldn't. Okay, you want to stop care because of this reason? Oh, I understand. I mean, there really has to be some conversations. Yeah, in the case of Mary, Roberta, and Tim, I mean, we're very blessed to have been able to get a glimpse of the gift that they are giving us and being able to kind of go to those places this is kind of the grace of a holy death in a way because it that grace pours out on everybody around them. And in this case, it pours out on the readers and the listeners that are hearing the story. Oh, and that's, I think, really very special. And I'm also thinking, again, I'm, I'm going to that, that caregiver. I have to think that in many ways, what I think your book is so good for is to kind of help the, the hearts of the caregivers, the Christian Catholic caregiver who is dealing in a world now where life seems to be becoming more and more disposable. And it's okay to have these, the groaning of the Holy Spirit in your heart when certain actions are being taken for either yes or no. It can be tough, can it? Oh, yes. I mean, and I would never want to ever appear at all glib or make, make it seem like these decisions are kind of matter of fact because they, they never are. They never are. And even when everything seems straightforward, even when everyone's on the same page and there's no disagreement, that doesn't make the decision easy. Decisions can be quite hard, even if it's clear that that decision has to be made. So we have to be mindful of what's going on with the family members and not push them, not become impatient with them, uh, listen to them. And I think if there is something that family members report as being distressful is that they didn't feel listened to or they didn't feel like they were communicated with effectively and things were rushed. And that's what we have to really push back against. Yeah, there's a real vulnerability for the caregiver, isn't it? Praise God that when they do say yes to that, because that's a bit of a suffering for them, too, to enter into. Well, any final thoughts on this particular portion of our conversation? I think with the specific thing of the ventilator, I, I do see sometimes patients, families, because of the ones making the decision, can really be kind of have this disproportionate sense of fault in that, if I give permission to stop the ventilator, I'm the one who caused them to die. And I made this decision. They died. My fault. And I'm kind of simplifying that, that, you know, what might be going through people's minds. But there's a lot of truth to that. And so I think one of the things that's important that communication by the healthcare providers is to explain to them, no, no, this is, you didn't cause this situation. And right now the ventilator is a tool of many tools that we're using to support them. But Removing the ventilator in this case and the person dies doesn't mean you cause that person to die. It means that technology was prolonging the situation. Technology was prolonging their heart and their or their organs, but it's not you who caused this 
person's death. And that takes some time for people to emotionally and spiritually get their hearts and minds uh, wrapped around. Well, thank you for helping us to get there. Well, thank you, Chris. us to, to approach that so much, Dr. Doran. Thank you. You've been listening to The Final Journey, insights from a Catholic deacon and neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel it's worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Final Journey, insights from a Catholic deacon and neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran.